2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 17. Normally, I preach out of the New American Standard Bible, but today I'm preaching out of the New Living Translation. Verse 14 says, But you must remain faithful. Now, this is Paul preaching to, writing to Timothy, faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You've been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood. They have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. And all Scripture, Timothy, is inspired by God. It's useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong. It teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Let's talk about leaving a legacy just for a little while. And uh, first of all, we're going to look at the teaching of a Christian mother. Look there in verse 14. But you, he says to Timothy, Paul does, you remain faithful. You must remain faithful to the things you've been taught. You know they are true because you know you can trust those who taught you. Paul said to Timothy, a young man of God who was an evangelist and a missionary, he said, you stay the course spiritually. You must remain faithful to the things you've been taught. Paul was warning Timothy, don't you stray into false religion. Don't you stray into false teachings that contradict what you've been taught in the Word of God. You can trust what you've been taught, Timothy, because of who taught you. You can trust what they taught you because you trust them, the ones that taught you. Now, precisely who taught young Timothy other than the Apostle Paul about Jesus Christ? Well, his mom and his grandmother. We read about it, yes, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says, I remember your genuine faith. He's talking to Timothy. For you share the faith that first filled your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I know that same faith continues strong in you. Somehow, when Paul arrived in the town where Timothy lived, a lady named Lois was already a Christian She'd already led her daughter, Eunice, to the Lord. And Eunice had already led her son, Timothy, to the Lord, even before Paul showed up. There's this legacy of three generations going on. That's a big thing in the Bible. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, the Bible says, so you can teach it to future generations. The spirit which is upon you and the word of God which is in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your children, nor from the mouth of your children's children. That's Isaiah 59, verse 21. I prayed that for my family a long time. Generational salvation where people are being born again. Rembrandt painted a beautiful picture of what he thought Timothy and his grandmother must have looked like. He did this back in the 1600s. 
I don't know if they look like that or not, <clears throat> but I thought it was important that Rembrandt, such a famous painter, would paint that. He understood that grandmothers and mothers are so significant in teaching at home. It was more important what Eunice taught her son than what Paul taught her son. Not against Paul. He wrote a third of the New Testament. But I want to tell you something. It was a mother that led her child to Christ. It was a mother who mentored her son. She couldn't depend on her husband because the Bible says he was a Greek. He was not a Christian. He was a Gentile. And he wasn't saved. So here she is. Her mother was saved. Her boy was not saved yet. And she poured into him without the help of a dad. And a lot of you are in that situation. You're either a single mom or a widow or maybe you're divorced. And you say, I'm doing it all by myself. Can we just thank God for the ladies that are doing it all by themselves right now? Having to go to work, come home, help with homework, do all the work there, and then bring them to church on the weekend when you're tired. I'm telling you, there's a reward waiting for you that will more than compensate. I'm talking about heavenly, heavenly rewards. We know that Timothy became Paul's adopted son in the ministry. It was like Paul saw that he didn't have, Timothy didn't have a godly dad, so he said, let me be that to you. We read back in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 and following, Paul went first to Derbe, then to Lystra, where there was a young disciple named Timothy. He was already saved, a disciple growing in grace. His mother was a Jewish believer, but his father was a Greek. Timothy was well thought of by the believers in Lystra and Iconium. So Paul wanted him to join them on their journey. In deference to the Jews of the area, Paul arranged for Timothy to be circumcised before they left, for everyone knew that his father was a Greek. So here you've got a man who was taught the Word of God by his mother. I have read several biographies about the Wesley brothers that lived in the 1700s. It's very interesting that when they were growing up, England was a spiritual wasteland. It was filled with all types of sexual immorality. It was filled with ungodly people who went to church. A few went to church that were real, but by and large, most of the people in England were very anti-Jesus. And then all of a sudden, some guys got together at Oxford. I'm not talking about Ole Miss. I'm talking about the University of Oxford. And they formed the Holy Club. And their leader was John Wesley. And they started talking about being born again. And they would go to be missionaries to America for a while, come back, and when they finally came back, Charles and John were saved. Now, who was their mother that had been praying for them the whole time? Susanna. And how many kids did she have? 19. And how many lived? 10. She had nine children that died. And she was a praying mother. She, she really is the one that probably should have written the song that we heard today. 
And when she would talk to the Lord, this was her signal. Her husband was gone almost all the time. He was a traveling preacher for the Church of England. And she would raise her apron over her head, which meant, hush. Or as Jesus would say, peace, be still. And everybody knew she was talking to Jesus. And she prayed and she mentored those kids. Charles Wesley wrote some of the greatest hymns in Christianity. Wrote 9,000 hymns. And many of them we still sing today. And his brother, John Wesley, started a movement called the Methodists. It was a negative term. They said, you're so methodical, it would be like calling somebody today a legalist. They said, yes, we're methodical. We go by the Bible. And they believed in being born again. The Methodist church in many ways has turned away from that today. There are still a few Methodist churches that preach the gospel. But I want to tell you something. They were founded in white-hot revival. And for 50 years, John Wesley preached the gospel all over England. He rode 250,000 miles on horseback, reading his Greek New Testament from place to place. Sometimes he would preach 15, 20 times a week. He preached all the time. And God lit a fire that changed a nation. I was telling that story one time about how far he rode on his horse and I had a deacon that said down in Texas, he said, that was some horse. <laughs> I said, I think he had more than one horse. But anyway, God used him. But it was his mother that led him to Christ. Oh, man. She taught John Wesley the word of God. I want to encourage you ladies out there. You said, Brother Steve, I, I don't know how to to raise children. Well, you've got a recipe for it right here in your Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. Look at it on the screen, right down the reference. These words, right here, these words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. They got to be on your heart first before they get on your kid's heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house. When you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Why on your hands? Why was the Word of God there? Because it should govern whatever you do. Why on your head? Because it should govern everything that you think. Why on your doorpost? Because when you leave your house, you know that you're leaving and the Word of God is to go with you. And the Jews to this day will touch that mezuzah and pray before they go out into the world. And when you come back, you say, it's not just for me to live for the Lord out there, but I'm going to do it at home. And you touch the scripture there and you walk in at your door and then at your gates for the whole world to know that you belong to Jesus Christ. That's how you train champions for Christ. That's how moms. And you don't have to, I mean, Praise the Lord if you've got a husband that loves Jesus. But even if you don't, you can raise a Timothy, a Timothy that's going to preach the gospel. You can raise a godly person. 
teaching of a Christian mother. Notice the tool of a Christian mother. Verse 15, you have been taught the holy scriptures from childhood. What did she use? She used the Old Testament. That's all she had. She might have had some fragments of New Testament material that was going to turn into some of the books of the New Testament that Paul had written, some of those epistles, some of those letters. She probably had access to some of the Gospels as well. Not John yet. It wasn't written, but Mark was written first, then Matthew, then Luke. She had that and she took what she had and did what she could do with what she had. She took the Scriptures and taught her son, Timothy, from the Word of God. You've been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood. They have given you the wisdom, Timothy, to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Jesus Christ. How'd you get saved, Timothy? My mom read the Bible to me, told me about Jesus, and I got saved. What a glorious thing. When Donna was first pregnant with Grant back in 1982, we were living in seminary housing, and uh, we did something. We started doing something. We did this for all of our babies. When we found out that she was expecting a baby, we started praying Scripture over the baby. You say, how do you do that? You lay hands on her tummy. And she laid hands on her tummy. I laid hands on her tummy. We were laying hands on Grant. And back then... You didn't know the gender until they were born. And so we prayed. We prayed scripture over those babies. Did the same thing with Lindsay. Did the same thing with Allie. Did the same thing with Bethany. We prayed all kinds of scripture. Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus that they will repent and return to you, that their sins may be washed away, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That's from Acts chapter 3. Lord, convict them of sin and righteousness and judgment. That's from the book of John. And Lord, help them to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. That's from the book of Romans. And Lord, let them love you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's Mark 12, 30. And Lord, I pray that no evil befall them, no plague come near their dwelling. Give your angels charge concerning them to guard them in all their ways. That's Psalm 91. And we just prayed scripture after scripture after scripture. You said that's the craziest thing I ever have heard in my life, not to me. There is power in the Word of God. Amen. There is power. And if you'll pray Scripture over your children, even when they're in the womb, and every day of their lives, they may stray. They've got a free will. But I'm going to tell you something. God can make it hard for them to stray. Amen? And even if they do stray, I want it to be a, the bumpiest road out there. Amen? I want them running through trees and everything else if they're trying to get away from Jesus. Pray for your children and pray the word of God for your children. The tool of a Christian mother is the word of God. Oh, it's a sword. Did you know that? This is a sword. Bible says in, he, in Ephesians 6, 17, put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. What did Jesus do when the devil tempted him? He took the sword of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, just one book, three verses. He quotes to him three times because he was tempted three times. 
He stuck the sword of the Spirit and the devil. After the third poke with the sword of the Spirit, the devil got out of there. Amen? You can read about it in Matthew chapter 4 or Luke chapter 4. It's in your Bible. Jesus used the sword of the Spirit that Hebrews 4.12 talks about. The Word of God is alive. It's powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and hearts. Don and I have, and again, I'm not putting us up like we're the role model. I'm not, we, look, I don't know where she's messed up, but I know where I've messed up, okay? I don't want to say this. One thing we've done, our whole married life, we've been married 41 years in next month, and uh, I got good things planned, so don't worry. Don't worry about that. But every since we've been married, we have at least one plaque that has scripture written on it in every room in our house. Bathroom, kitchen, everywhere. Because we wanted our kids, just when they walk through the house, to be exposed to the Word of God. Let those sermons keep going. Let the Word of God keep coming. That is our tool. We have one tool. Listen, don't just read the book of the month with your children. Read the book of the ages with your children. Get the Word of God in their hearts. Let them memorize Scripture. We've got a little granddaughter that memorizes chapters of Scripture. <laughs> Don't tell me they can't do it. Sure they can. Please, God's given you a tool. The everlasting Word of God. It is powerful. Use it, Christian mothers. Then what's the task of the Christian mother? She understands that it's not the church's job to get Jesus in her children's lives. It's her job. That's the task. It's her job to lead her children to faith in Christ. It's her job to pray for her family. Notice what he says. Christian mothers, you'll understand your responsibility. Paul's talking to Timothy in the context of his mother and grandmother, teaching the word of God to him. And he says, all scripture, all that scripture that they taught you, it's inspired by God. Literally, it is God-breathed. And it is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong. It teaches us to do what is right. Are you hearing what I'm hearing? Is there wrong and right? Yes. There's wrong and there's right. And it's determined by what the Bible says. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Timothy, teach all Christians the scriptures, but especially Tell them to teach the scriptures to their children. It's not the church's job primarily, Timothy. It's the parental job, the mom's job, the dad's job. To teach the children the Bible. To show them what is true and what is false. To teach them truth according to the word of God. Not truth according to what the culture says but to what the Bible says. They need to know the Scripture, the Holy Word of God.
What did Solomon say about parenting? He said, if you will train up a child in the way he should go, even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Now, did all of our kids live a spotless life? No. Some of them strayed for a while when they were in high school. I call it the years that they were developing their testimonies. And it was a hard time. But we prayed. We fasted. We grounded them. Took away car keys. Weren't any cell phones back then. Or we'd have taken those away too. But we disciplined them. By the grace of God, they're doing right. They've come to the Lord. And they're engaging the word of God that's inspired. It's useful to teach us what's true, makes us realize what's wrong in our lives. Christian mothers, our world has gone crazy. We've lost our minds. The LGBTQ movement is wrong. I'm not, look, if you're tempted with those sins, Jesus can forgive anybody in here. But they are sins. Adultery is sin. Fornication is sin. Cohabitation is sin. Homosexuality is sin. Lesbianism is sin. Bisexuality is sin. Transgenderism is sin. And God created us male or female. And our schools, wait a minute, our schools are trying to totally set that aside and say, that's not right. You're not, your gender is not determined by your physical gender. It's whatever you think you are. That's what you are. I got news for you. That is a lie. That is a lie. That is a lie. That is a lie. If God created you a male, you are a male. Amen. And I'm not calling anybody who is a male a her. Amen. I'm not mad. But I'm not going to do it. And I'm not going to call any man a her. And by the way, they should not allow biological men who think they're a woman to compete in girls' sports. They shouldn't do that. That's wrong, too. There are two or three girls that have been knocked out, almost killed, by men who think they're women boxing. That's not right. You say, why are you so upset? He's talking about right and wrong based on the Word of God. And once you give this up, and we gave it up back in the 60s, in America. We took this out of our schools when I was in the third grade. We were praying and reading the Bible in the first and second grade, but we took it out when I was in the third grade. Has it done us better? Are we better morally? We're killing 2,000 babies every day in the womb, brutalizing them. If I want to say this. If you killed an animal the way they kill unborn babies, you'd go to jail if you killed an animal that way. And yet people kill babies 
torturous ways every day. And it is wrong. It is wrong. It is wrong. It is wrong because the Bible says we are precious in the sight of God, even in our mother's womb. I could go on. I won't. But I'm telling you, we better get some parents teaching them the right things. And if you've got teachers at school teaching the wrong things, you need to register a complaint and you need to say, I don't want my children taught that garbage. I don't want them hearing that stuff. I want them hearing what the Bible says. And if they won't change, take them out. School them yourselves. All scriptures inspired by God. That's the task of a Christian mother and a daddy to teach your children. That's your task. Not the churches. Not the government. That's your job. That's your job. Teaching of a Christian mother. Tool of a Christian mother. Task of a Christian mother. Ah, look at the triumph of a Christian mother. Eloise. Oh, I'm sorry. You need... Eunice, let me tell you where I got Eloise. Our grandbaby, our granddaughter, I'm going to have lunch with her today. She is one sweet little girl. And she's got a little baby girl on the way. And we said, Ainsley, what's mommy, what should she name? She said, she should name her Eloise. So I call her Eloise. I'm sorry. Timothy's mom, Eunice. She left behind a legacy. She triumphed. She was a godly mother. Listen to some of these verses. Timothy assisted Paul, who wrote a third of the New Testament, who evangelized the whole Roman Empire during his lifetime. Acts 17, 14 through 15. The believers acted at once, sending Paul on to the coast while Silas and Timothy remained behind. Those escorting Paul went with them all the way to Athens, then they returned to Berea with instructions for Silas and Timothy to hurry and join them. Timothy was helping Paul. Paul had gone and planted a church in Berea. They were the ones who were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. They received the word of God with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them, along with a great many of godly men and women, were added to the faith. And Timothy was helping in all that. He assisted Paul. And then not only did he assist Paul, but Timothy preached the gospel. Timothy preached the gospel. 2 Corinthians 1, 19. For Jesus Christ, the Son of God, does not waver between yes and no, He's the same one whom Silas, Timothy, and I preached to you. And as God's ultimate, yes, he always does what he says. It was to him, Timothy, that Paul said in his final chapter, in the final thing Paul ever wrote before he got killed by Nero, It was to Timothy that he said these famous words in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, and it was about preaching. 
I solemnly urge you, Timothy, in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he appears to set up his kingdom. Here's what I want you to do. Preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, encourage your people with good teaching. And then he says something that sounds so much like America is scary. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. Rather, they will follow their own desires. They will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear, and they will reject the truth and chase after myths. That is exactly where we are today. People don't want to hear the Word of God. They just want to be entertained. Tell me something good. Tell me I'm going to be blessed no matter how I live. Tell me that I'm okay. You're okay. Everybody's okay. I got news for you. That's the kind of preaching that sends people to hell Amen. in a handbasket. It's when you tell people, yes, God loves you. Yes, God wants to bless you. But you're a sinner. You've broken the laws of God. The wages of sin is death. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. We're in trouble. But Jesus stepped in when we were in trouble and Jesus died on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sin because he was the only one that lived a sinless life and he rose from the dead and he's alive and he'll forgive all your sins. But you've got to repent. You've got to turn from your sin and quit living for yourself. And you've got to give your life to the Lord and surrender to him. And you've got to receive him as your Lord and Savior. You've got to pray and ask Christ to come into your life. And when you do that, you become a new creation. Old things pass away. New things have come. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. The Holy Spirit comes to live within you. And all of a sudden, the Bible starts to become a love letter that God wrote to his children. And now you understand it because you're the child of God. You're saved by grace through faith. All of your sins have been washed away. New things have come. Old things are behind you. You're pressing on. You're not doing perfect, but you are living for Jesus. And when you die, your soul and spirit goes to be with the Lord. And when Jesus comes back, your body comes out of the grave in a resurrected form, reunited with your soul and spirit. You're going to live with the Lord for a thousand years on this earth in what we call the millennial reign. And after that, it's going to be just like the, the Garden of Eden in the first two chapters of the Bible. After that, then this whole world's going to be burned up, and then there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth and a new world, and we're going to live with Jesus forever and serve him. That's what's waiting for you. That's the kind of preaching we got to have right there. That's the kind of preaching we've got to have. Timothy preached the gospel. He preached the word. Timothy encouraged Christians, 1 Thessalonians 3. Paul said, we sent Timothy to visit you. He's our brother. He's God's co-worker in proclaiming the good news of Christ. We sent him to strengthen you, to encourage you in your faith, and to keep you from being shaken by the troubles you were going through. But you know that we are destined for such troubles. Timothy also oversaw, that is, he pastored churches. He was the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Don and I have been to that church twice 1 Timothy 1.3, when I left for Macedonia, Paul said, I urge you to stay there. He's talking to Timothy in Ephesus and stop those who, whose teaching is contrary to the truth. Timothy worked, helped Paul, found churches in Corinth, Thessalonica, Philippi, but he was the first senior pastor, if you will, of Ephesus. 
Paul said in Philippians 2, I have no one like him. He was an overseer. And then the greatest legacy of all, I've saved for last, and this is going to be a hard pill for some of you to swallow. But the greatest thing he did in his life, he died for Jesus. Timothy suffered for Christ. Oh, he was in prison several times. We read in Philemon 1, verse 1, this letter is from Paul, a prisoner for preaching for the good news about Jesus Christ and from our brother Timothy. Timothy was right there in the cell, jail cell with him. I'm writing to Philemon, our beloved co-worker. We read in Hebrews 13, 23, I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released from jail. If he comes here soon, I'll bring him with me to see you. He suffered for Christ. You say, I don't want my children to suffer for Christ. Well, I don't know anybody would want their child to suffer for anything. But if you're going to suffer, don't you think the best thing to suffer for is Christ? I mean, if you got to suffer, that's what you'd want to suffer for, is the gospel of Jesus. And at the age of 80, long after Eunice and Lois had gone to heaven, long after Paul had gone to heaven, here's the elder pastor, 80-year-old pastor of the church at Ephesus, watching a parade come down the street, just like they do in our day, parading immorality, parading the worship of Diana, the goddess. And there were some people doing sexually explicit things in the parade as it went by. And that's all Timothy could handle without releasing the word of God from his soul. And he stands up, and they're coming by, and they're doing sexually immoral things out in the open, very similar to the things we see in our days, in our streets. And he starts preaching the gospel and saying, Jesus will forgive you for what you're doing. Jesus will forgive you for your immorality. If you'll return and repent and you'll come to Christ, you'll be saved. And some of those people went over and grabbed him took him out of the way and just started beating him with their fist. And then they took clubs and they beat him with the clubs. 80 years old. And they dragged him to a rock quarry, took him up to a cliff, pushed him off. And when he landed on the rocks below, they came down and stoned him to death. You say, how do you, how do you say that's victory? Man, he was absent from the body and present with the Lord. Amen. Amen. I'd rather, look, I'd rather be hated by the world and the devil and loved by Jesus than to be punished by the Lord and loved by the world. Amen. He left a legacy. We've still got two books that Paul wrote to him. Don't tell me God didn't answer Eunice's prayer. Don't tell me God didn't bless Lois. She led her daughter to the Lord. She led her son to the Lord with a husband that didn't care about any of it. And he led multiple thousands to the Lord. 
And he even died for Jesus. That is how to live and to leave a godly legacy. May God give us more Eunices. Simple, simple people, just simple women that raise godly children. I am praying for God to raise up some prophets in our day. Maybe there is a mother out here. You've got a child. You say, I've got a son, Brother Steve. Pray for God to use that child. Even if he dies as a martyr for Christ and brings people to Christ, that would be a wonderful legacy for you to leave. God help us. God help us. We are in trouble. God help us to have some godly women that don't just want their boys to be rich financially, that don't just want him to marry the pretty girl, but they want more than anything else for their sons and their daughters to love Jesus Christ.